Now hear God's holy word from Exodus chapter 20, continuing our study in God's law in the Ten Commandments. Here is the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the end of the first commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the, generation, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we pray that as we read and take in and contemplate and meditate on your law, that we would learn to love it, that we would grow to love the way that you have expressed yourself through your perfect law, and that we would obey it, that we would submit ourselves to it. So may we today continue this pursuit of love for your law, and we ask that your spirit would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You have uh, no doubt heard it said, and you might have even said it yourself, seeing is believing. And we say that because it's assumed that sight is our most reliable sense. But is it? Is our sight the most dependable, infallible sense that we have? Have your eyes ever been tricked into seeing something that you knew for a fact wasn't true? Have you ever seen a magician make a coin appear out of thin air? Have you ever seen a movie with dinosaurs in it? Unless there are dinosaurs in a cage somewhere in Hollywood, and uh, somebody knows how to train them to act on film, then somebody knows some tricks to make you think you saw a dinosaur in a movie. How many times, though, have you heard uh, two eyewitness accounts of the same event that had conflicts that varied greatly at significant points? They, these two people were both there. They were both watching. Is one person lying, or did someone perceive things differently than the other? See, it all depends on perspective, and it depends on how your brain interprets the information that is coming into it through your eyes. Because our eyes immediately believe, our, our brain immediately believes the, the information that comes in through our eyes, even if the information is false or tricky, like an optical uh, illusion. In spite of this, in spite of the fact that we know that there are optical illusions and there's sleight of hand, and in spite of the fact that we know that we can see things differently from somebody else and interpret it differently, we still behave as if what we see is always true. That we don't need to hear, we don't need to wait, we don't need to think through things to round uh, things out to get the whole story. We'll see events and then we'll play a game of connect the dots and come to conclusions that are potentially way off base, but that's okay. We're convinced because I know what I saw. I know what I saw and my eyes don't deceive me. And that's enough for us. Well, it's not enough. We have other senses and our sight is limited. Our sight is finite. Because of this, because of the tricky nature of sight, the worship of the living God has never been a religion of the eye only, but a religion of the ear, a religion of hearing. Not a religion of pictures and images, but it's been a religion of words or the word. In the Ten Commandments, God forbids the carving of any image for the purpose of bowing down to them or using them in the worship of the living God. You must not carve an image and bow down in front of it. 
Remember I said last week that the first three of the Ten Commandments all have to do with idolatry. The first word that we saw last week, by the way, the, the Bible always refers to these as God's law words. The, uh, we, we call them commandments, but these are God's words. There's the first word, the second word, the third word. So in the first law word we saw last week, there is a prohibition against covenantal idolatry. That is, turning from our covenant with Yahweh God... Yahweh Elohim, remember that word was significant, Elohim, the word for God or gods, turning away from Yahweh God to serve other Elohim, other powers, to covenant with other authorities. And the preservative against that, we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8, is knowing God's word inside and out. That's the preservative against first commandment idolatry, covenantal idolatry. Here's what you do. You hear and you know and you understand and you obey God's word and you live in light and the blessing of his word and you won't turn to other Elohim. You won't be, you won't be following after other Elohim to worship them and serve them. And then as a benefit and a blessing of that, God promises to drive out your enemies from before you. That's the promise in Deuteronomy when Moses preaches on the 10 commandments in the second giving of the law. In the new covenant, the promise is that the nations will all submit to King Jesus. That's the promise of keeping the first commandment. Now, the second law word, the second commandment, is the prohibition against liturgical idolatry. If you remember, the first commandment is about covenantal idolatry. The second is about liturgical idolatry. And the third that we'll get to next time is practical idolatry, carrying the name of Yahweh in a vain way. So we're going to focus on the second commandment and this prohibition against liturgical idolatry, the use of idols in worship and bowing down to and worshiping God through things that you have created. God says you shall not make a carving of any likeness, any created thing for the purpose of bowing down and serving it. God forbids the use of images in worship because the eye is the organ of judgment. We see that from the very first page of the Bible in Genesis chapter one. God saw that it was good and declared it good. He saw and, and judged it and discerned the creation's worth and declared his pleasure in it. The eye is the organ of, of judgment and discernment. And more accurately, when we're referring to our own eyes, our eyes are the organs of our judgment and our discernment. We believe that our eyes don't lie. But the truth is that we're always bringing our own fallible interpretation into what we see. Moreover, we can shut things out and not look and not see what we don't want to see. God gave us eyelids. So if you didn't want to look at me today, you could close your eyes and not have to look and see anything that I'm doing. Uh, you wouldn't have to pay attention. Uh, but the ear, however, is the organ of hearing and submission. It's much harder to stop hearing than it is to stop seeing. God didn't give us ear lids. He gave us eyelids, but he didn't give us ear lids. Sometimes I wish I had ear lids so you could close out annoying sounds, right? But he didn't. And so if you want to stop hearing something, if you wanted to stop hearing the sound of my voice, you would have to get up and you would have to go very far away from here. You would have to at least go get in your car to, to no longer hear me. Uh, you, would, you would have to remove yourself. It's much harder to stop hearing than it is to stop seeing. But as long as you're within the sound of my voice, as long as you're within the sound of God's word being read, you're subject to it. And so this is why God often commands the scriptures to be read 
aloud, not simply with the eyes, quietly to yourself, but he commands his words to be read out loud in the hearing of the people. And when he says obey, the word in the old English Bible, I love, I love uh, the way the King James uh, translates many things, and, and one word you see often is hearken. I love that word, hearken, hear. That, that has the uh, connotation of both hearing and obeying in one word. Listen to what I have to say. The word of God thunders and it demands our attention. When we hear the scriptures, we yield to them. We put ourselves under their authority. We allow ourselves to be challenged by them, which is why it is by design that we have a lot of Bible in our order of worship. We have a lot of Bible in our liturgy together. We come together and I say the Bible to you and you say the Bible back to me and then we sing the Bible and then we say some more Bible back and forth to each other and then an elder reads some more Bible and then I open the Bible and I talk about the Bible and then we're gonna pray the Bible and we're gonna sing some more Bible before we're done saying some more Bible. And it's, it's shot through with God's word from beginning to end. This is by design. When you hear the Bible like this, when you hear God's word, you are challenged by all kinds of things that you wouldn't hear on your own if you just stayed at home with your Bible in your chair. You might flip to something, you might read it, and if you didn't like it or if you didn't understand it, you would close it or go on to something else. If you're reading to yourself privately, you can close your eyes and you can ignore it. You are in control. But if you are listening to the word of God being read, you have to sit there and take it, right? <laughs> if I read the Bible, you just got to take it. I mean, you can get up and, and leave, but that would be kind of a faux pas and that would be socially awkward if you were to get up and walk out in the middle of me reading the Bible. You'd, it'd be kind of a scene, right? So, so hearing and listening is submission, seeing uh, is judgment and discernment. Now, that is, that is what we get by hearing the Bible, by, um, by listening to it. We are put in a place of submission, but idols, icons, relics aren't like that. It's not the same with an icon or a picture or a statue. I could set up an idol or a statue of St. Jerome here or St. Ambrose at the front of the room, and it would never challenge us. What we get from that is only what we bring to it. We bring our own interpretations, our own impressions to the idol. If you doubt this, you, you haven't been paying attention to the news lately. Look at the present clamor over statues. There are poorly educated children running through the streets who don't know the history of the things that are being honored, and they don't care. They don't care, and all that matters is the message that they're projecting onto these things now. That's how it, it works. You're projecting this onto them. With a statue of a saint, we could create our own philosophy of what the idol means to us and this, 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 how, this thought about how special it is or how meaningful it is, but the idol itself will not tell you anything that you don't already know. It won't challenge you. It won't bring you anything that you don't want to think about. It only reflects back to you what you project upon it, which makes idolatry a form of self-worship. We are worshiping our own thoughts, our own reflections, our own meditations, which is idolatry. Let me give you another example of this. If I show you a picture of a girl and a horse and a barn, you would look at that picture and you might start creating your own story about what's going on in the picture. Is she about to go 
out and ride the horse? Is she just there to feed the horse? Has she just gotten back from riding the horse? What is the horse's name? What is the girl's name? Where does she live? Does she live in the US? Does she live in another country? What time period is this from? Well, let's try to pick up some clues. A picture by itself is never gonna give you all that information. A picture may be worth a thousand words, but all those words are coming from your head unless there's some external explanation of what is going on. A picture is only going to reflect back to you what you already know. And so who is in control when you look at a picture? You are, you're in control when you look at a picture. You are the authority. And we tend to project things into pictures that aren't there, which is why God forbids their use in, in worship. God forbids their liturgical use. With idols and images, man controls what the image looks like. Man takes the initiative. But in the worship of the living God, it's God who speaks first. God draws the pictures. In fact, the only carving that can be used in worship is the one that God made. It's the one that he carved when he carved his word into stone tablets in Exodus 31. It's the same word that's used in this commandment, the same use that God later uses for the way he carved his word into stone. When it comes to worship, God does the carving. God does all the carving. We don't set up carvings. He carves his word first into stone, and later he carves it into the person of Jesus. Jesus is the heart of flesh. The law is the heart of stone. But he gives it to us so that it can be read aloud, and so it can be carved into us. But he does the carving, not me and not you. Don't carve anything, God says, in order to bow down to it and serve it. Now, the word bow down in this commandment means do acts of homage, to bow down low with your face to the ground or to kiss it or to, to prostrate yourself like you would kiss the ring of somebody in authority. Don't prostrate yourself before it, God says. Now, some who use images in worship say that they're not worshiping the statue it's just a reminder. It's just something you use in worship. You, you pray before this saint or this icon, and it, and it helps your thoughts, and it helps your memory. But these things have been blessed. These things have been, uh, had some, some essence of the saint charmed into them by the prayer of the priest. There's some, some grace uh, being, being transferred in, in some kind of way in, in, their, in their thinking. And that's not far off from what the ancient Canaanite idolaters did. When the, when the Canaanite idolaters set up, set up idols, they didn't think that their, their carving was actually Baal. They didn't think it was actually Astarte. But if you want to talk to Baal, you have to go to this thing and you've got to talk before this thing. These idols are not the gods themselves but they're kind of a telephone to the gods. And that's what God forbade Israel from doing, and it remains something that he hates. You don't prostrate yourself, you don't bow down to, you don't kiss a created thing and treat it like a telephone to heaven, as if you can be heard better through this charmed thing. But that's precisely what happens in the Roman church and in Eastern Orthodoxy and parts of the Anglican communion. A priest blesses a thing, he consecrates it, and now it has some special significance to God. That's what God forbids. That's exactly what God forbids. When you, when you pray in front of it, that is, that is forbidden. Now, as a way to organize our thoughts here about what the second commandment prohibits and what it doesn't prohibit, I, I have five hopefully short uh, summary statements 
to help us think through this. So I want to I build little, a little ladder up to um, what it forbids by, by saying first what it does not forbid. First of all, the second commandment is not a prohibition against art. The way our English Bibles divide the text into verses make it appear as if uh, verse 4 and 5 are, are talking about two different commandments. So first, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, and verse 5 says you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Those are not two different commandments. It's the same sentence. It's, it flows into uh, the, the second sentence from the first. Don't make a carving for the purpose of bowing down to it and serving it. This commandment doesn't say that you can't paint pictures. It doesn't say that you can't take pictures or you can't carve things out of marble or wood for the purpose of artistic expression. If that were true, then God would have immediately contradicted himself in his instructions for the tabernacle because in the tabernacle there were carved expressions all over. God didn't contradict himself. What he says in the second commandment is you cannot carve something and prostrate yourself before it. We're not talking about ordinary art in the second commandment. We're talking about something that you make for religious or liturgical use in worship. So that's the first thing. This is not a prohibition against art. Secondly, this is not a prohibition against religious art. Stained glass or paintings of scenes from the Bible are not prohibited here. In fact, when you study the history of art in the West, you see that for the majority of our history, almost everything that was painted were scenes from the Bible up until a certain point. There were scenes of the Garden of Eden or scenes of creation or scenes of the Last Judgment or scenes of, of things that Jesus did. The Bible inspired great artists to paint these masterpieces. But there's something very interesting about these painting, uh, paintings of events. The Bible gives us a religion of history. It's a religion of events, of things that happen in real time. And paintings of events typically don't, don't encourage any kind of religious veneration. One of my favorite paintings is the painting of, uh, that, that Rembrandt uh, did of Jacob um, blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. And nobody looks at that painting and thinks, oh, I, I think I should pray to Jacob. Because it's a, it's a, it's a uh, painting of an event. It's, it's a painting of a, of a historical uh, uh, event. Icons, however, have this timeless quality about them. Icons aren't a painting of a scene. They're a painting of a saint frozen in time just staring at you. Have, you. have you ever seen how these things just kind of creepily stare at you? They follow you around the room when you move. They're still looking at me? Is it still looking at me? I'm afraid to look at it. They look at you. They're not a painting of a scene. They're frozen in time, just staring at you. And nobody bows down to a picture of an event. But somehow these, these, these frozen pictures of saints uh, lead to that. And this goes for moving pictures too. With movies, we can depict scenes from the Bible, but no one is tempted to bow down and worship the scene or, or the screen. But idols and statues are a different kind of art. They remove the person from history. And when you move biblical religion away from its stories, away from its history, away from these mighty acts of God, you're left with a religion of ideas and philosophies, of, of man's own creation, a religion that, that has, has in it the DNA of idolatry. You're just projecting onto it what you already think. So secondly, this is not a prohibition against religious art. Thirdly, this is not a prohibition against art in a worship environment. In most Reformed churches, 
and churches in the tradition of the Puritans, we tend to have these sterile, plain, white sanctuaries with white walls, no adorned windows, no, no pictures. But when you look at the temple and you look at the tabernacle, they were full of art and full of pictures. Uh, 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 there were things adorned with flowers and trees frescoed on the walls, palm trees and cherubim, lion faces and ox and eagle and man, 12 bulls carrying the water chariots, images of created things. In the early church, in the catacombs, they drew pictures on the walls. One of the most famous pictures on, on the walls of the catacombs was uh, the scene of Jesus eating fish with his disciples after his resurrection uh, when he was there on the seashore. Uh, and that was a particularly um, memorable image that they painted in the catacombs. It was normal throughout the ancient world and throughout the ages to have art everywhere on your walls. They didn't have glidden paint just to, to paint all of the walls one color. They covered their walls with scenes and, and people. Traditionally, there has been a place in Christian church buildings for art. And if God didn't like it, then he wouldn't have prescribed it for use in the tabernacle and the temple. So uh, this is not a prohibition on, on any art at all in the sanctuary for worship. Fourthly, there is no prohibition on pictures or paintings of Jesus. Jesus had a real flesh and blood body. Jesus had a real face. And if there were cameras in the first century, people would have taken pictures of him, pictures with him. Well, they didn't have cameras, but everybody who saw him would have remembered what he looked like, and they would have kept that memory in their head. And eventually, some people tried to draw and paint what they remembered. To deny that you couldn't draw or paint Jesus seems in effect to deny his incarnation, as if he's somehow too ethereal to be, to be pictured, as if he's too uh, wispy to be remembered this way. I heard somebody say one time that they repented every time they pictured Jesus in their head. And when they pray, they try to block out images of Jesus that they've seen in art because they think to imagine Jesus is a violation of the second commandment. Is it though? In fact, it seems kind of impossible. If you have any kind of active imagination, it, can't, it seems kind of impossible to not read the Gospels and think of, of what Jesus looked like. It seems impossible and unnecessary to try to keep any image of Jesus out of your head. The second commandment is a prohibition against carving images for worship, not a prohibition against imagining Jesus the man. And don't you think with the amount of time that Matthew and Peter and, and, and John, the amount of time that they spent with Jesus, that they remembered what he looked like. And so when they prayed to Jesus after his ascension, did they not remember what he looked like when they prayed? When they prayed, were they violating the second commandment if they remembered their friend and Savior and Lord? No, it doesn't seem like that's required at all. I, I can't even imagine the alternative to Im read the Gospels and imagine, you know, this, this blur. You know, wherever this, these, you know, pixels go, well, that's, that's Jesus. That's the place in my, in my thoughts for Jesus. That seems impossible to me. Now, we need to acknowledge that there are serious dangers in certain kinds of pictures of Jesus and, and mostly in using only one kind of picture. And then where you put the pictures is a concern as well. First of all, evangelicals tend to use only a certain kind of picture of Jesus. Usually it's the rosy-cheeked 
a picture of the white Jesus with the long brown hair and the blue eyes looking off into the distance. Again, it's not a historical event. It's just a picture frozen in time of uh, this artistic rendering of a white Jesus. And that's the, that's the one most evangelicals think about or, or their thoughts go to. The Roman church prefers the crucifix where Jesus is only and always pictured eternally on the cross, uh, continually being sacrificed for our sins and not as ruling from heaven as he is right now. We're also drawn to the sentimental stuff like Jesus holding a sheep or Jesus knocking at a door. But there aren't a lot of pictures in our, in our collective consciousness of Jesus thundering at his accusers or arguing with the Pharisees, when in fact we read the Gospels and there's a whole lot of Jesus in heated confrontations, but those are not the ones we hang on our walls or in our church foyers. I would love to have one though, wouldn't you? Just a, a, just a red-faced Jesus with the whip, you know, turning over the tables and uh, doing that kind of thing. And then, and then people would come in and they'd see that and they'd just walk out and say, I know what kind of church this is. I guess we know what's going on here. But there's a problem of using only one kind of picture as if we're trying, if, if we're trying to represent Jesus artistically, we need lots of kinds of pictures, historically contextual pictures to round out the character of Jesus from the gospels, not just one kind. And we have to be careful. We must be careful where we place them. Stained glass, this is all theoretical right now because we're in a barn. But imagine when we get the sanctuary built here. Imagine stained glass windows along the side of the church. They're not going to attract our attention when we kneel and pray. You're not going to stand in front of a stained glass window um, and, and kiss it and kneel before it and bow before it. I don't think those uh, attract that kind of attention. But if you have a picture of Jesus dead center at the front of the sanctuary, and if we all kneel and we face that picture every single Lord's Day, that telegraphs a certain kind of message that must be avoided. At some point, somebody's going to start thinking, especially little people are going to start thinking, oh yeah, we're praying to that picture. That's, that's what we're focusing all of our worship on. If you want to have a print of the Last Supper hanging in the church library, the second commandment doesn't forbid that. There's all kinds of room for artistic expression, even pictures of Jesus, but you must not bow down to them or worship them or pray before them or kiss them or treat them with any reverence. Now, fifth, and, and this, this is, the, is the prohibition, now, now saying what, what it doesn't prohibit, here's what it does prohibit. Worship through images is forbidden because it is worship of a false god. When, when God was giving these commandments to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, Aaron was at the bottom of Mount Sinai stirring up the people to do exactly what this commandment forbids. What do they do? They make a golden calf, but they don't call it Baal. They don't call it Molech. They say, and Aaron says, this is your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, what's God's response to this? He doesn't say, oh, I'm so thankful that you're worshiping me. I know that you're doing a little bit of quirky thing and it's a little bit out of the ordinary, but I know that you're really worshiping me. Uh, you just need to make some liturgical adjustments. You just have a few minor errors. That's not what God says at all. He says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. That's how seriously God takes second commandment idolatry. It's not that they're worshiping God in error. The fact is they aren't worshiping him at all. They were worshiping a false God. Later, in, when the kingdoms get divided and Jeroboam sets up the bulls, he says, these represent Yahweh. But the prophets come along later and they refer to them as false gods. They must be torn down. 
those who set up idols are demonstrating a hatred for God. And God's response to this is the strongest language in the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not do this because I, Yahweh, am a jealous God. That's marital language. This is the jealousy of a husband for his wife. And idolatry throughout the prophets is called spiritual adultery. And so he says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. These errors take a long time to undo. Their bad fruit is carried out for generations because making images and icons and relics and bowing down to them is not an aid to the worship of the living God. God says, those who do this hate me. Notice he says, I punish three or four generations of those who hate me. If any generation stops hating him, if they repent and they obey, they get the blessing, which is in the next verse, he shows mercy to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. It is impossible to, to, be, uh, to be preserved. It's, it's impossible to be blessed from generation to generation so long as you maintain this idolatrous element in worship. Now, why does God make this threat so severe in this commandment? There are other sins that are wicked, but why is his threat so severe here? Well, this commandment is so strongly worded because worship is dangerous territory. We are bound to go bad in worship first before we go bad in theology or go bad in church government or go bad in some other practice. And what we sing and what we pray and the order of our worship directs all of life. It directs all of our doctrine. You fail at worship, you fail at life. All of life is directed by who and what and how you worship. Lex orandi, lex credendi. What you pray becomes your creed. I was looking all afternoon yesterday. There's a quote, and it's safe to say it's probably Lewis, but it may be Chesterton. It's probably one of those. He said something like, and maybe one of you know where this quote is, you start with singing some silly little song on Sunday morning, and before you know it, you've murdered your neighbor. I mean, that's, that's, that was his illustration of Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. You start with something really foolish in worship, and before you know it, you've killed somebody. What you pray becomes your creed, which is why we must have worship that is regulated by God's word and not regulated by our whims. Having a reliable liturgy preserves us. It keeps us sane and faithful and in the faith. This is vital. God's threat here is also severe because for whatever reason, this is the sin that we historically run to. I can't look at the Ten Commandments and say, you know what? We're going to skip the second one. We're not going to talk about this because we're Reformed and we're Presbyterian and we'd no sooner have a statue of Mary than we would have a statue of Rocky Balboa in our worship service, right? We'd no sooner have a statue of Mary than we'd have a statue of Buddha. It's just not going to happen. We can't assume this. Historically, when things are disrupted, people go right to second commandment idolatry. This was the first sin that Israel committed at Mount Sinai. Throughout the times of the judges, with all of that social upheaval, there is constant setting up and tearing down of idols. As soon as Jeroboam takes the reins of the new kingdom of Israel, he sets up graven images. That's his first act. That's the first thing he does. In Ezra and Nehemiah, they're trying to restore the society of Israel. They're trying to restore the kingdom and the city. And 
and restore the temple. And in the midst of this, men are marrying idolatrous women and bringing idols into their homes. In the early church, right after the apostles pass away, right after that first generation goes away, it's not very long before we start to set up relics and shrines and images and prostrate ourselves before them. We set up idols so quickly and it makes no sense. Yet we do the one thing that makes the least sense in our foolishness and wickedness. And according to this commandment, our, our hatred for God is, is our rush to idolatry. Our hatred for God is demonstrated in our rush to second commandment idolatry. So none of us can assume that we're immune to this. But why? Why is it that we go this way? All you got to do is read history and see that this is, we, we tend to do this. Why? Well, the use of images is the quick and the easy way of religion. Hearing and reading is the slow and difficult way. But it is precisely the way that God has prescribed, the slow and difficult way. God gave us a long book to read, full of all different kinds of literature that takes a lifetime to study and master and apply. But we aren't patient people. We want memes. We want sound bites. We want bumper stickers. We want hot takes. Just give me the summary. Just sum it up for me. But that's not the way of growth and change. In order for growth to take place in our lives, we and, and, and our society are transformed by slow and patient processes. The quick way is the destructive way. The slow way is the faithful way. Idols and icons don't challenge us. They don't demand anything from us. All that is there is what we put there, what we assume to be there. Worship of idols is really worship of ourselves. Worship of idols is worship of our own ideas. There's lots of reasons we might prefer to, to be surrounded by saints on a wall or saints in statue form rather than flesh and blood saints. No statue of Mary was ever mean to me. No, no statue of Mary ever, ever hurt my feelings or misspoke. No painting of St. Jerome ever challenged me to see things differently, never corrected me, never convicted me of my own sin. Life with painted and plaster saints is a whole lot easier than life with flesh and blood saints. But God didn't give us statues. He gave us each other. He gave us uh, the body. He gave us people. He didn't tell us to make a carving. He does the carving. Resist all forms of idolatry. Repent of all the ways that we are using and abusing images. Knock down all of the idols. You think seeing is believing? No, hearing is believing. Therefore, hear and obey. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your perfect law, and we pray that we would be more and more conformed to it. May we take nothing for granted, lest we think that we have this one licked, lest we think that we would never be tempted by this. Preserve us by your Holy Spirit. Restrain the evil impulses of our hearts and direct our worship solely to you and your Son and the Holy Spirit, who we pray builds us and blesses us throughout the rest of this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.